Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. As always, and before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to remind and continue to encourage you to please send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is in fact, CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share the show with your friends, rate the show, comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. As well, why not follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is definitely and very sincerely appreciated. Now, let's get this show started, shall we? I'm joined today by my good friend, lawyer, entrepreneur, coach, Barry McGuire. I want to begin just by taking really 60 seconds or so to give you a little bit of Barry's background. He is a long-term RAIN member. He's a veteran real estate investor and is senior counsel at RMLO Law, LLP in Edmonton, Canada. He is a guide and a leader in thinking about Alberta real estate like an investor lawyer with over 40 years of experience as a real estate attorney and handling literally thousands of real estate transactions over those 40 years, Barry and his team focus on buying and selling all styles of real estate, from houses and condos to apartments, commercial buildings, acreages, and far more. Which is only to say, this guy is a serious expert in the world of real estate as a lawyer. He's the co-author of a national best-selling book, 97 Tips for Canadian Real Estate Investors, and is a sought-after speaker, educator for investment real estate and law groups. When he's not practicing law or coaching investors, Barry is an avid gardener, he's a hockey player, family man, and bon vivant. He lives in Edmonton with his wife, Donna, who partners with him by leveraging her strengths in many aspects of their businesses. And Barry loves spending time with not just Donna, but also with his niece, Adriana, the daughter he never had. His son, Colin, is a PhD and researcher in ethnomusicology and plays a really nice role as a backstage support for Barry and Donna in all of the things that they have going on. Now, without any further delay, I'd like to welcome my good friend and guest. Barry McGuire, welcome 
to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Thanks for being on the show, pal. Patrick, it's always fun talking to you. Glad to be here. You and I are friends. We've worked together. We've hung out together. And so I've got a lot of things that I want to discuss with you and and really pick your brain around. But I want to, you know, I'd like to start out with the fundamental question for the listeners that don't know Barry Maguire. And because this does, this podcast does really, in some cases, go very global. Tell me a little bit about Barry Maguire. So in your, what we'll call an elevator pitch, what's the short story for who Barry Maguire is and what he does? So uh, Barry Maguire, I'm a full-time real estate uh, lawyer located in my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I've been a real estate lawyer for over 40 years, and I am very passionate about real estate uh, in my working life as a lawyer. So uh, sometimes I look at it and go, you know, what the heck? Aren't you kind of bored of this stuff 40 years later? Well, no, I'm not because things keep evolving, working with uh, you and the RAIN organization, uh, doing more creative real estate. All of those things uh, let me continue to be very interested in all things real estate. So I guess following along a, a little bit in that vein over the past seven or eight years, my wife Donna and I have put together what we call focus workshops. Um, they deal with uh, both creative investing, which we can talk about a little later, and basic uh, buy and hold investing, well attended by people, well thought of. Uh, so I've, all, I've discovered later in my career that I, I, I like teaching and I, I love helping people learn about real estate. So that's been a kind of recent development on the, on the legal side. And uh, those focus workshops are, are, are ongoing. I work with the uh, what's called RMLO Law LLP in Edmonton, Alberta. We help, we help folks all over Canada buy and sell real estate in Alberta. So that's kind of the legal side of things. Shall I carry on and tell you about my totally interesting personal life as well? Or <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll get into that, and because uh, there's lots I want to learn. You know the the premise for the show that I like to ground our listeners in and on our guests is that really seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results, and certainly you qualify in that context for me. You and uh, your wife, Donna, have done some really great, great things over the years, and you've been a real contribution to the success of others. And really, for me, one of the things that I find interesting about the guests that I bring onto the show, in, in their success, it's often built in, most often built in supporting others and succeeding. That's part of really what I heard even in your intro of what kind of lights you up in the world of real estate, you know, real estate transactions are real estate and transactions. You've done what over 40 years, how many thousands? Uh, 25,000. Yeah. But you still see things come out that because of the evolution of what's going on in the world of real estate and because you work a lot with real estate investors, there's always a little kink in the deal that, you know, you need to massage or work with. And, and you find that very fascinating, very interesting. It's kind of what you take on as the challenge and say, we got this. We got to work through this. Is that is that the case? It is, uh, and you're you're totally correct when you say that uh, the challenges keep coming up. Sometimes I I say to myself, "Come on, you've been doing this forty years. Uh, what what is this new wrinkle crinkle that's showing up on this deal?" But the changing the world the world is changing all the time. Financing rules, especially in Canada, have 
tightened up considerably, as you know, over the past six or seven years. And that's driven a lot of change in how real estate is done. Everyone tries to revise and get better. I mean, for instance, the the Realtors governing body, the Alberta Real Estate Association, just spent a whole bunch of time and money in 2016 completely revising all of the normal documentation that we were all used to using over many years. So, so in in, uh, in late 2016, all this whole big whack of new stuff came out that had to be read and absorbed and figured and worked. And so, uh, as much as you know, a basic real estate transaction is fairly cut and dried thing. Uh, overall, uh, it continues to evolve and change and require more attention and more amendment. And it's endlessly fascinating for me. Is your primary business working with real estate investors, Barry? Is that where the majority of your business is built in, in real estate transactions? I know you do the you know mom and pop and kids buying houses on a normal transaction, but is the majority of your business really built around real estate investors? You know, I would say, Patrick, that uh, interestingly enough, it probably divides up about 75% on the mom and dad and the kids and the dog moving into their their, uh, Primary their forever dream home yeah. and 25% on, the, uh, 25% on the investment side. I think that of all the people buying real estate, it's without hard numbers, I think that maybe 5 to 10% of those transactions involve creative real estate. And in my practice, 25% of my practice involves creative real estate. So, uh, you know, the, the mom and pops uh, in terms of numbers overwhelm the creative numbers, but I still do lots of creative real estate, about 75, 25, I'd say. So when you take and look at the real estate investing side of it, that's for you where the I mean, you're being a contribution on both sides. So you really enjoy, though, the education part of it. Now, you're not doing that with the mom and dad buying a home for the family as much. I'm that that's my kind of my interpretation of it. Is is that the case? How much you're not really providing that kind of education, whereas with the, you know, focus, focus workshops that you and Don are doing and the real estate investors that you work with. It takes time and education, and you're guiding them, and they're learning a lot along the road with you. Is that is that a fair statement? I think that's I think that's a fair statement. Yes, the focus workshops that we do are all really aimed at investors. Some of them would be good for moms and pops, but but overall, they're aimed at investors. On the mom and pop side of things, I have uh, written three or four publications. So, Patrick, if you called me up and said, Barry, I'm buying a house. I don't know anything about it. Gee, how much does it cost and what's going on? Uh, I would send you an email that has a, uh, a legal account rate card attached and a first-time home buyers or first-time home sellers PDF attached to it that's 10 pages long and gives a whole whack of information. So we do that on the I'm moving into the house with the kids and the dog files. Um, not the dog files, <laughs> <laughs> but on the really all of the focus workshops are on the investing side. And we've got about, I think, seven or eight separate focus workshops on the investing side. You're on our stage often, I mean, on a pretty regular basis as one of our go-to education providers. You're also a service provider in that you provide some legal counsel along the way if that's what's, what people are looking for. But in terms of your own journey to being a lawyer, I always find that 
for me and for our listeners, there's a part of it, a part of the guests that we said, well, how did you get here? I mean, gosh, you're been a lawyer for 40 years. You were, you know, so you were very young when you started on that journey. Give me a little bit of your background growing up, Barry. How is it that you became a lawyer? Your dad, I mean, your dad didn't, he passed not that many years ago, like just got what was in the past five years, three years. When was that? About three years ago. Yeah. yeah. And he was what, 90? Nine, almost 96, 95. 95 years old. My mom, my mother turns uh, 90 uh, March 13th. And uh, so, well, I mean, gosh, that's just amazing, isn't it? It's good genes, Patrick. Let's good cross genes. our fingers. Let's, and- <laughs> yeah, let's let's hope we're having these conversations when we're both ninety. So the question is: Is how did you get into this whole legal journey? How did it start? Why did you grow up to be a lawyer? <laughs> you know, I would like to say that there's a really interesting, you know, teaching point kind of story behind that. But the the truth of the matter is, when I when I finished high school. I was headed for medical school at the at the U of A, and so I signed up uh, for pre med, and and it's of course pre med is full of science courses, math and chemistry and biology and full full of science courses, and I discovered that uh, my talent didn't lie in science at the university level. It was fine for high school; I got great marks in high school, but at the university level, I sucked. Uh, at science courses. Yeah. So I switched without having one clue about what I was going to do. Uh, 180 degrees and I fought the, the next year at university, I was in the arts faculty uh, majoring in English and political science, which, as you know, the, today, $3.95, uh, uh, you know, and that will get you a latte at Starbucks if you have an arts degree. <laughs> so I finished my uh, I finished my arts degree and uh, went out and looked for a job. Discovered jobs were then as they are now tough to come by when you have that kind of a non specialized degree. So I did what lots of our graduates do. I went around. What can I do? So oh, they'll let me into law school. So uh, I mean, law school was kind of a default option when I couldn't get a job after my arts degree graduation uh and i discovered i really liked the law and i was pretty good at it so that's how i ended up in law school well those are forks in the road in our life i mean that was obviously something showed up as a fork in the road for you which was you know if i want to work for a living and if i want to make money i better get my shit together and figure out what the hell i want to do and uh lawyers seemed appealing you know were your parents behind you in that journey were they professionals what was your mom and dad's background at the time you know, uh, that's that's uh, something I've I've thought about a lot. Uh, I thought about a lot over my over my life. Uh, my mom and dad were both high school graduates. My dad, over his career, uh, sold life insurance. His first job was uh, selling shirts and ties at a menswear store in Edmonton, uh, and he made eight dollars a week. Nice, eight bucks a week. Yeah, he said his his elevator pitch for the for the uh, the well-off Edmontonians coming in to buy shirts, is he would tell them that the shirt was made of Egyptian long cotton from the banks of the Nile, which was apparently a good pitch if you're trying to sell shirts when you're making eight bucks a week. So uh, he, he finished his career as a social worker, and uh, I'm an early morning guy. I think you're an early morning guy. I think I got that from uh, waking up in the morning and finding him at our dining room table 
in the west end of Edmonton, and he'd have his all his files open from his visits to his clients the day before, and he'd be writing up reports. He'd make a big pot of tea, and I'd haul out my books, and we'd do homework and write reports from sort of 5.30 in the morning until everybody else got up for breakfast. So uh, that's kind of my early morning stuff with my dad. And on my mother's side, she was, you know, married and had five kids. And so that was her big job until the last of the kids left home. And then she uh, turned herself into a an assistant at schools. She ran the office and assisted principals and did that for about 25 or 30 years. So they weren't university graduates and they didn't really have any they didn't really have any sense of, of how to coach their children about what to do. It was, did you, you got your homework done? You know, get home after school and do those chores. Uh, and so I just kind of found it on my own. There wasn't much push at home to, to really do anything. Just carry on and you're responsible for your own life was kind of how it was around our house. So ultimately, you know, you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You kind of came up from humble beginnings. You went on the journey of education and into the inevitable law degree and your lawyerly ways. What about the rest of your family? Entrepreneurial in spirit, working in spirit? There are four other children, if I heard you correctly. Yeah, there's four other children. My brother, Mark, who's closest to me a couple of years younger, uh, left school when he was 16 because uh, he thought that if he was getting good marks in school, which he was, and carrying his load of chores around home, which he was, and playing lots of sports successfully, which he was, that he should be able to write the rules at home about when he could come and go and what he could do. And if that meant going out with his friends on Saturday night when he was 15 with a case of beer, he, he thought my mom and dad shouldn't object to that, which they did vigorously. And so he left home in grade 11 and started a plumbing career uh, fairly quickly established his own plumbing business, and he's quite entrepreneurial. He had a very successful plumbing supply business that he worked all across the country. That's Brother Mark, closest to me. Uh, my oldest brother, Brian, has been a kind of world traveler his whole life. Um, not much on sticking around anywhere, or uh, he got a, uh, an education a degree late in life and turned it into teaching English as a second language. And when he was in Taiwan doing that, he met Debbie, who owned um, six, six or eight restaurants. And they got to be friends, and then it went farther than that. He and Debbie got married. So my brother Brian, who really never had two pennies to rub together, finally is living in the style to which he always wanted to become accustomed because his entrepreneurial wife is doing very well. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, that's brother Brian. Um my sister, my one sister, Mary Beth, married Richard Bintner, a Saskatchewan bison farmer, when she was 19 years old. And she's lived in Saskatchewan for her whole life. Four kids, uh, lots of grandkids. And I visit Richard and Mary Beth in Saskatchewan every year with my niece, Adriana. And that leaves my brother, Rick, the youngest, who was a good hockey player and a jazz musician. He went to Grant McEwen and got a, a jazz degree. and. So he's worked various jobs over his life, started a few businesses, uh, plays a wonderful baritone saxophone, and happily married to Sharon. So that's my family. The journey that you've taken as a, a lawyer, Barry, is interesting because, well, this is my story, is that you know I find most lawyers 
there's a certain A-type personality about them. They're usually a little sharper. And I don't mean sharp as in smart. I mean, just they're, they're, they've got an edge to them. You're, you're not that guy. I mean, you know, you're known for just being, you know, your characters, you've got a soft energy, you're quick to smile, you're very supportive. You're certainly not a litigation guy. Uh, I, I don't get that you're built to be litigation with that sharp edge. Is that, is that true for you? Uh, I learned that, Patrick, during my very first year of articling. Like you graduate law school and then you have to do a year of articles to see if you could actually become a real live lawyer. And in that year of articles, you're supposed to do, you're supposed to practice and get little bits of all different areas of the law. And I discovered really, really quickly that I did not like going to court. I did not like the fight. I didn't like the stress, and I particularly didn't like uh, the the family law, divorce law side of that. That is so full of people who are not wanting to just move on with their lives and sort out their problems, but they want to hurt each other. So uh, yeah, about one one year into my career, I discovered I didn't want to be a, a a litigation guy. I moved over to what they call the solicitor side and started doing corporate work and uh, real estate work and wills and estates and, and that sort of stuff suited me much better as a lawyer and just in terms of character you know how conscious of are you of how you show up as a lawyer in terms of character you know are you because you're known for gosh you know integrity impeccable t- integrity you know, being true to what you say you're going to do true to who you say you are you don't, I mean, there is, there's not too much for gray areas for you. I mean, you're always knowing and being very mindful of not crossing any lines in the world of law. Is that a skill or is that a character trait that you consciously, consciously have developed? Is that something you work on or is it just truly who you are when you're, when you're thinking about your day or when you're thinking about situations are you very thoughtful mindful of who you're being because you do show up a little stoic you're you know you have that quality i find well on the on the 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 ethics and the and the gray area side of things as lawyers we are trained and it's pounded into you that that you have a position where ethics and truthfulness and uh, no gray area is is how lawyers are supposed to be, and that if you're not running your life and your practice like that, then you should be. So that's kind of drilled into us right from the beginning. But then, uh, in my in my practice as a, as a creative real estate lawyer with lots of investors, I've had to I've had to develop that notion of integrity and no gray area, and I've had to be able to articulate it. A lot more in a, in in different ways, uh, in lots of different situations. Because creative real estate doesn't just mean you're choosing to do an agreement for sale or a rent to own or an uh, assignment deal. Creative for lots of people means if I can get around this rule and nobody finds out, am I okay? Right. And and so and so you have to be able to say to people, for instance, if I can just use an example, as you know, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation insures mortgages so that people can buy properties with 5% down on a 95% mortgage. So that if you only have to put 5% down 
on a property, whereas everybody else who's buying an investment property has to put up 20% with a conventional mortgage. All of a sudden, you you can make your pool of money go a whole bunch fa- or a whole bunch farther if you buy properties with five percent down. But CMHC is supposed to be for the mom and the dad and the kids and the dog moving into the personal residence. That part of CMHC is not supposed to be helping investors buy properties with very little money down. Yeah, leverage more money. Leverage it more. Leverage it more. Yes, it's leverage and. My gosh, Patrick! Last week, I had a I had a, a client uh, who I've met show up and say, "Well, I finally made a decision. I'm, I'm ready to buy, and here's my plan. I'm going to buy a house with five percent down, and we're going to move in, do a few fix-ups to it, and then in about six months, we're going to move out and buy another house with five percent down. And that looks like the way I'm going to kickstart my real estate investing career. And I have to go. You know, you really can't do that." Those 5% down deals are about moving in, and it has to be your intention to move in and stay moving in. You can't have an intention to game the system to get to use the 5% down multiple times. So it it shows up a lot, and so the the ethical side of things has to be near to the front of your mind, and then you have to be able to talk to people about, if that doesn't work, what might work? Coach them away from really breaking the law and committing fraud and off to something that uh, that would that would still work and I, I guess the other the other part of it is with the real estate investment network your organization that you know it's near and dear to my heart I think you know we have an obligation as people who speak often to to make sure everyone knows it's the organization's mantra that we do not operate in the gray area we do not things are either legal and upstanding and we can shout it from the rooftops or we just don't get involved in the deal. And that protects people from themselves and from nasty knocks on the door later and from finding out that it's never in the end worth it to to be in the gray area and, and cause yourself trouble later. So uh, that's something we, I know you do it a lot and I do it a lot too. And that CMHC particular example that you gave, I've like you, I've talked to many real estate investors who have said, well, no, I'm going to live there at least a year. And then I'm going to move out. In the context of intention and what the intention of you going into the property, at that point, the intention is still to buy it as an investment property, live in it for a year, and then move out. Because I want to just drill down on this point. Because now, in their world, in you know, are they in fact still offside, given what their originating intent is? Or does CMHC care and you know, really... Are they offside? Let's just ask that question legally. Yes, yes, I do think they're offside. As long as the intention is to move in for a year and then move out, and you you didn't say whether that person was going to try and buy another house with five percent down, but if if that's really what they're saying, I'm going to move in, stay in for a year, then Rent I'm going to move out. out, and I'm going to get an, another five percent down mortgage. It's it's all about intention, and it's not about time. That could be your intention to do it five years apart. It's all about intention. CMHC is to help people buy uh, houses that they move into as their personal residences, and it can't have any aspect of investment attached. So in the world of black and white and gray, at the end of the day, the strategy is about how do I do this without getting caught, as opposed to how do I do this within the 
rules and regulations of CMHC. And that's the... That's right. You know, that's essentially what people are saying who want to employ that strategy is how can... I can do this without getting caught, right, Barry? And (laughs) we just, we don't support people in that strategies except to try to show them different ways to buy and not be offside CMHC. And, you know, if people say, am I going to get caught? I say to them, there's probably a very small chance that you would get caught employing this strategy. Occasionally, CMHC audits properties. In other words, they come along and bang on the door and say, hi, are you the guy who uh, bought this house and moved in a year ago? And if not, who are you? So that happens rarely. So I, I think that lots of people do this and don't get caught. But part of the integrity and part of the stain in the in the white area, not the gray area, is to tell people what the rules are and caution them against being in the gray area, which would be to employ that strategy and stay in the house for a year and and then play the odds that you won't get caught. So we just we don't coach that that's a good thing to do. Yeah, I don't know exactly. I didn't, you know, even going into this particular podcast with you today, Barry, I don't know what direction is because I was going to go with it. And I and I there's so much to learn from you because of 40 years as a real estate investor and as a lawyer. And certainly there's lots of real estate investors that listen to this particular podcast. But it's also for me about your journey of being a lawyer and the success that you've had. You're also a real estate investor. You and Donna do some deals and have for some time. You've what, you bought your first investment property back in the seventies or something. I'm, I'm going by memory, so I won't take over that. Oh, no, that's right. That's right. I mean, this is, I think this is kind of an interesting story. Uh, I was in, in law school between, I think, first and second years. And uh, my girlfriend at the time had a girlfriend who worked at the Indian Association of Alberta. That was right at the time when that young firebrand, Harold Cardinal, was running the, the Indian Association. Jean Chrétien was the Minister of Indian Affairs at the time. This would be 1972, probably. He was, the, uh, he was the Minister of Indian Affairs, and he put out something called the White Paper. And the White Paper proposed to abolish the Indian Act and replace it with something else. They were going to try and give uh, Indigenous people uh, personal rights to land. Right now, if you live on a reserve, it's, it's really under the trust of the federal government, and you can't own that land or mortgage it or pledge it as credit or do anything with it. And Drunker Chen was going to change all that and bring the indigenous folks of Canada up into the 20th century. So treaties would disappear, the Indian Act would disappear, and there was a huge firestorm. The indigenous First Nations did not like that one little bit. They had some protection, even if it wasn't great in the Indian Act, and and they didn't know what was coming. So Harold Cardinal wrote what he called the Red Paper in response to Jean Chrétien's White Paper, which was totally against and in opposition and and had a whole bunch of reasons why uh, they were never going to allow that to happen, which is to abolish the Indian Act. So my girlfriend, whose girlfriend was the personal assistant to Harold Cardinal, they had a law firm. They had a law firm uh, working for them, and they needed an articling student to, to research over the summer. So guess what? They hired me. That time I had hair down to my knees and I smoked players filter and I was pretty disreputable looking and <laughs> nice, nice uh, you know, Coke and players filter for breakfast. Those were the days. So I, I went to work for the law firm Walsh Young. It was, and I had another researcher there who was also in law school. I didn't know him. He was a year ahead of me and he was buying up houses in the Garneau area of Edmonton. 
left, right, and center. He this was in the days, Patrick, when you could assume mortgages without qualification. Sure, in Alberta. So yeah, that was awesome. I I did a few of those. Yeah, yeah. Unlike the rest of Canada, where that never really existed, but in the seventies and up until actually about ten years ago, you could assume mortgages without qualification. So if you had if you had uh, you know five thousand dollars down to a fifty thousand dollar mortgage way back when, you could you could buy and and he'd accumulated ten houses already, and he goes Barry. You should buy a house. Well, there wasn't any any mortgages to assume, and I didn't have any money. But my brother Mark, the plumber, remember he's he's kicked out of home and he's working in Fort McMurray, so he's got lots of money. So uh, my friend Paul found us a house in Garno. We found a mortgage broker to help us. We applied for a mortgage. I had the down payment from my um, student loan. It's just at the time of the year when student loans were coming in. So I spent my student loan on the down payment. Brother Mark could qualify for. Uh, the mortgage because he could make the payments as long as they came out of his account every month and he didn't uh, and his rowdy plumber friends drink them up with lamb's navy rum every weekend uh and so we bought a house in garno it was a three-bedroom house it was twenty-three thousand dollars twenty-three thousand uh, dollars so we quickly put three bedrooms in the basement three more bedrooms and patrick these these bedrooms were Bits of blanket hung on the on the joists, sure. stapled to the joists. Yeah, yeah, and I mean those and houses in Garno are what nine hundred square feet, eight hundred square feet, or did you get something a little uh, bigger? This one was a little bit bigger. It was two stories. It was probably eight hundred and up or down, and six hundred up. Got it. And and but so then we have six bedrooms. So I jammed myself and five of my other friends and, and law school mates into the house. And all of a sudden, my brother and I have a positive cash flow property. And I had enough money to pay my tuition and buy my books. And, and uh, so two and a half years later, when I graduated and moved to Calgary, uh, my brother said, well, I'm in Fort McMurray. I can't, I can't manage this house. And so we sold that property that we bought for 23000 and my recollection, and I think it gets bigger over the years, but my recollection is we sold it for $67,000 two and a half years after we bought it. Big money. So, I mean, that's about two and a half times the profit. And so from that day on, in 1972 or 73, I'm hooked on real estate. I've been buying and selling real estate ever since then. You know, we talk about people investing in real estate. You've been at this game 40 years as a lawyer, we see individuals build big portfolios and we see people that have just methodically bought three, five, seven doors. What have you learned in your, what have your observations been over the years of people who are very aggressive and growing a big, big portfolio, let's say of a hundred or more doors or 50 or more doors versus those individuals that have different aspirations where they're going to have five doors or three doors, seven doors, 10 doors, the, because you, you've, you've really seen some stuff go very, very well, but you've also seen a number of things go very, very wrong. And, you know, in terms of your lawyerly insights and guidance and advice to real estate investors, what, is there something that you would pass on in terms of a lesson in big for, portfolio, small portfolio? What is it for you? That's a good one, Patrick. How, how long do we have here? <laughs> it's not meant to long stump as we you. Want. It's not meant to stump uh, okay. you, but you know. All right. Well, um, I, I think that there's two or three points I'd like to make in there. So, just as a beginning notion, nobody starts out with 200 doors. 
Nobody starts out buying a 10 apartment complex that, that, that has 200 doors in total. Everybody starts off typically buying a house or a duplex or something like that just to dip their toe in the water and, and see what it's like. So my coaching around that for people who are listening and maybe just a little afraid to get going is that if you surround yourself with a good real estate team, if you educate yourself as as it is so important to do and as the Real Estate Investment Network does so well for its members, then you can very quickly buy a decent property in a decent area, manage the heck out of it, and you're going to have a successful real estate investment. So that's how everybody can get started. And then once once people have started there, then they start thinking, okay, who am I in this real estate game? Am I am I looking for you know a whole bunch of doors or a few doors? It's part of what we we all teach you, which is to say, what what are you trying to get out of this? What are your goals? What's your beliefs? Why are you doing this? And it's not enough just to say, I want more money. And you have to figure out what your real reasons are, and then that drives uh, that drives people in the direction of. Am I going to accumulate a few properties or am I going to try and do the 200-door route? You know, at that point, over my career, I've seen lots of folks in each of those categories. More people in the, we've just bought a few doors category than there are in the people who bought 200 because that's sort of much harder to do. But uh, if we stick with the people who are just buying a few doors, uh, I've had lots and lots of clients who go, you know, if I bought three to five properties and just paid those babies off, I've got a decent job. I like to save. Uh, if if I start when I'm 40, they'll be paid off when I'm 60. And then between uh, a little bit of pension money and these properties, I am absolutely set for the kind of person I am, for how much money I need, for what I want to do with my life. And that's, uh, that's a way that'll, that a lot of people go. But on the other side of it, there are people who, once they get started, you know, they buy a, a property, especially if they you know, buy a duplex or a fourplex, and they start to see the economies of scale that you can achieve when you have more doors under, under one roof. Those very entrepreneurial guys then start to dig into what multifamily investing means. And... Um, if they find out that they have the uh, the mental chops and the acuity and the drive to to move forward with the more intensive searching, the more intensive financing, the more intensive management, then they move into the multifamily area and they buzz along and they and that could mean they buy three twelve suite apartment buildings. It's not necessarily two hundred doors, but if you have three twelve suiters that are ticking along nicely, that's a wonderful retirement plan. I think that's the key there too, and what all of what you're saying is, you know, know why you're doing it. it. It can't be just about the money. You have to know what you want to do with that money. There has to be, and then there has to be a plan that you're working and with some clarity, not just arbitrarily buying doors without really the thought of what you're going to do with those doors. I, I had this conversation in an interview that we did with uh, James Canal, a realtor, as you know, in Edmonton who talked about some of the mistakes that he made early on, which was buying doors for the sake of buying doors, a volume play versus a 
quality. It was a quantity play versus a quality play. Do you see that still a lot? I'm I'm guessing, or how how has that been for you? Is are those lessons that you've seen people learn the hard way over the years? Uh, you know, I certainly have. I certainly have, and those lessons are often there's more of them learned when the market is really popping along. Uh, when, when there's the fear of missing out, as we had that giant run-up in, I guess it would be probably 03 through 07 before things collapsed in 2008. You know, there was there was a point when investors would take an apartment that they'd purchased, they would condominiumize it, turn it into condominiums, and then uh, once those were those condominiums were actually available as single units to buy, if there was 36 of them for sale. They would sell out in a day. They would sell out in a day, and people would just scoop them up by two, three, or six of them at a time. Uh, to their dismay, later, as they bought into a rising market, not thinking about whether they were buying quality doors at a reasonable price or whether they were just so afraid of missing out, they bought whatever they could get their hands on. So there was a lot of a lot of tears uh, in the in the real estate collapse of two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, just because of what James said, they were so worried about volume and not about quality that uh, they bought anything and they lived to regret that. I guess that's a, such an important lesson. You know, you and I have been around on this earth long enough to have seen some uh, peaks and valleys of an economy. And certainly when the economy's great, as in that time, 2002, 2003, right through to 2007, and actually then again in what, about 2011, 2010, right up until 2014, when the market's hot, everybody looks like a genius. And everybody's a real estate investor genius. And the reality of it is, is that it's in those hot markets that I believe you have to be more cautious than ever because everything's moving faster. You're forced to make decisions quicker. Your offers go in different. And all of a sudden it's a multiple offer situation. I think, you know, I want to, you know, just given this podcast and who goes out to, you know, that's what's going on in Toronto right now. It's also what's going on in Vancouver, Fraser Valley slash lower mainland. So we see that in certain markets to this day and people are jumping on a rising market and not necessarily really being cautious or being thoughtful in what it might look like in a year or two or three or four, because real estate is a longer term game. You have to be able to look into the future as well. That's totally true. It's uh, certainly buzzing along, almost bubble-like, you might say, in in the Toronto uh, metro area and other places in Ontario, uh, as well as uh, BC and the lower mainland. But it's classic. It's classic that a property that has gone up 25% 25% in the last year, let's just say you find a property that, that's gone up in one of those boom areas that you look at and you squeeze it and you analyze it and you you go, yeah, man, if I could get just the optimal top rent for this place and if they'll legalize my basement suite and if I can get really top rent for that and if I get the garage done, then I can just squeak by and make my payments. What's really strange about that is when the property was worth 25% less two years ago, nobody wanted it. When it was sitting there to grab, 
nobody wanted it, but <laughs> nobody wanted it when it was cheap, but everybody wants it when it's expensive. So that you just really, really have to watch out for getting caught by that mania because as you pointed out, real estate is a long-term game and something else that people, the corollary to long-term game is illiquid. Real estate is illiquid. Mm-hmm. If you're looking to, if you need money fast or if you're looking to get out, especially when things aren't going well, well, guess what? You cannot get out quickly. And if you do get out in a falling market, you're likely to take a beating. So how you buy in real estate, like all types of investing, is really the most important key to success, how you buy. You know, it's, uh, I want to shine a light on it, just spend a couple more minutes on this particular topic. You know, I developed a question over the years because of my own past mistakes of where I bought real estate and why I bought it and have learned my lessons along the way. And as, as a coach and as a teacher, I like to share my lessons and, and not my story so much, but what I've learned from it. And, and one of the questions that I developed, and I, I don't know if I'm the originator of it, but I use it, which is to say in a hot market, in especially in a buy and hold, or particularly in a buy and hold situation, I coach investors to ask themselves one question before they do and pull the final trigger on a buy and hold deal. And that question is, in a softer market than I'm in today, when in that neighborhood, there's six properties just like mine and vacancy is higher, will my property still be desirable and at the top of a tenant's list for desirability? Because in a hot market, it doesn't matter. You could buy that house next to the service station and the dumpsters and backing onto a busy street, but in a hot market where availability or, or demand outstrips supply, that property will get rented. As soon as that market softens, it doesn't. And so for me, it's a, it's a bit of a test. So ask yourself the question, if, this, if there was six or 10 other houses in this neighborhood, available for rent, is mine still desirable? And it's a bit of a final check. That's such a good one. And uh, I think over the last three years or so, um, a lot of people have been saying to themselves, gee, I should have asked myself that, <laughs> that question. question as, three years ago, as, yes, yes. Three years ago, because yeah. my property is unrented because it doesn't compete favorably in the neighborhood that I bought in. Yeah. Okay, a little bit about um, social media, your social media, you and Donna have your social media, your Facebook pages, et cetera, uh, because of your focus workshops and the work that you do and the coaching that you do with you know, those creative buying strategies. Do you find that social media, when you're working with investors, do you think that there's some ego that gets in there and there's a little bit of keeping up with the Joneses that you see with real estate investors? In other words, a little bit of FOMO given that they're seeing others taking action and they're chasing that as opposed to having a great plan. Cause this for me goes back to what is your plan? And, and do you see that? Do you think social media causes some of those challenges as well, where you're comparing yourself to others? I think it does. And this is anecdotal. I have no, no proof of this, but I do believe that folks who spend a lot of time on social media who are, who are getting the buzz from social media and who aren't really grounded with who they are and what their plan is. Uh, I think that social media can be quite influential. And, and yeah, there is, there is the fear of missing out. So I think we all of us have to watch 
how much time and effort and credence we spend in social media as opposed to looking at what our plan is and how we're implementing. Barry, you turned 70 years old. That's right. I'm catching up. You live, you and Donna live pretty humble. You've done very, very well in your life, but you and Donna both live very humble. How do you define success? How, how, when you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, I'm really happy with what I've achieved in my life and you have that sense of success, what, how do you define it? Well, we, we do have a smaller living footprint. You've been to my little house in the old Strathcona area in Edmonton. It's a, it's a tiny house with a, with a big backyard. And Patrick, you know, there's nothing more I like to do than be out in my garden, tending my, uh, you know, my grapevines and my raspberry patch. And I like to go picking Saskatoon's in the ravine. So, you know, the big house doesn't define success for me. Success for me is really being able to do what Donna and I like to do. And that is we like to travel, number one. And, and so our most current travel plan is that we like to be able to get away on four trips a year of varying lengths. Four trips a year. And then <laughs> the other one, maybe you're going to laugh at this, the other one is Donna loves to go out for uh, for lunch. She's a particular fan of Japanese food. And so I said to her, sweetie pie, if we've reached the stage where you can go out for Japanese every day of the week, if that's what you like, how do you feel about that? She goes, we've made it. So we like to travel. We like to have time for our for our family and friends. We like to garden, and I love to make jam and give it away, as you know. And I love my I love my real estate practice because it's it's so interesting and and creative with lots of interesting interesting people. I really like my adventures on the web under barrymcguire.ca or investorlawyer.ca, where we just got well over 130 posts and blogs, which over four or five years now generates lots of traffic and actual files, and it's it's fun to do. So, Patrick, I'm having the time of my life as a lawyer who's been at it 40 years. It's only been getting better as time goes on, and I'm enjoying my uh, my life and my career more than I ever have right now. Was there a time when once again, I and I know you and Donna, you're not driven by material things and, you know, you'll go out and buy a nice watch occasionally, but ultimately that's not what drives you. Was there a time in your life as a young lawyer where you were more driven materially or is this part of your nature is just being really built around contribution, relationships, that kind of thing? And I guess it's kind of always been how I was, although when I was in Calgary, when I was uh, articling in Calgary and I did my first three years down there, uh, all of the partners at Walsh, Harkness, Pittman, Young, Clark, and Smith, as the firm was, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> um, they all lived in that very prestigious Mount Royal area in sure. Calgary. Yeah, beautiful. And that's lovely housing there. Uh, Calgary has such better housing stock than Edmonton, those big old, just really wonderful houses. We don't have as much of that. We got Glenora in Edmonton and a few places like that, but Calgary had lots of it. And so as I went to visit you know, parties, we visit with the partners and I went, man, this is where I want to be. This is it. I want to have a house in Mount Royal and I want to have a Jag like my boss, Bob Young. And that's kind of how it started out for me. But then I grew more into, you know, that's really not me. I'm a, just a 
plainer kind of guy who likes quieter and simpler things in life. And it's like I wasn't going to be a litigation lawyer like my boss, Bob Young. I wasn't going to live in Mount Royal either and drive a Jag. So I'm pretty happy where I am. So, Barry, on that conversation, it's interesting. You know, you're not known for a, a you know, we all have our ego on, on one side or the other, and that's a way deeper conversation. But you don't have a an ego that really defines you as, you know, big and bold and brass and arrogant. You're, you're not, that's not your ego. You're, you're known as being very, very humble. There's no doubt about your reputation for wanting to be a contribution and support of others. And I know that sometimes that tests your patience for with people. They'll have a tendency to carry on a little bit longer than uh, seems reasonable. But yet you remain committed to getting those kinds of things handled. How much of that on, you know, on a personal development side do you do you you know do you do you do you and Donna have or do you work on that personal development side that mindset side are those the kind of conversations that you're in is it very intentional for you or is it really truly just for whatever reason you realize who you are and you stay true to yourself or are you on constantly working or on a regular basis working and defining yourself Donna and I have done some personal development work that focused on looking inward and trying to figure out who you really are and, and where you want to go and how you would get there. So we've done some of that kind of work, but by nature, I am a helping kind of person. Uh, I've always, since I've been a, you know, a little guy, I've always wanted to help out. So it's kind of my nature to, to do that. And as I got to be a lawyer, I found that this was a really good way for me to be able to uh, do what I like to do anyway. So, I mean, I do, I do love it when people send me an email or give me a phone call and they want to talk about a problem. And, you know, what I, what I always want to do is just get them pointed in the right direction. And if, if that turns out to be work for me to do, that's great. But if it's sending them off somewhere else, then that's, that's also fine. So I'd like to help. And I'm so fortunate to have married Donna, who, Patrick, you know her quite well, and she has... Uh, amazing natural insights into life and people and how things go. So she compliments who I am and keeps me grounded and, and often takes the who I am naturally and kind of moves it along to another level. Uh, so between the two of us, you know, we are three dynamite people. Uh, and I, I have to say lots of that is due to Donna's influence and just her natural way of helping, helping people move things forward. Yeah, I think we're both blessed to have pretty amazing <laughs> wives that uh, they seem to uh, be able to get us going in the right direction and elevate us when we yeah. perhaps are not quite as in the mood for being elevated. They they do drive us totally that way. <laughs> That's awesome. So as we kind of go through the show uh, and and get into it, you know, I like to look at forks in the road, you know, because as listeners hear to the success of others or listen in on the success of others and how they got there and their journey. You know, we talked about a fork in the road, you know, at some point when you first started, you know, in university and the fork in the road for you was going, holy cow, you know, medical stuff's not for me. I'm into law. And that's how that kind of evolved. It was a bit of a fork in the road. Is there any other forks in the road that took you down a path that you were, that you can reflect on now and go, wow, that was definitely a fork in the road. And, and it's interesting that I chose that fork because that is why I'm here today. Is, do you have any of those moments that you would share, Barry? 
Uh, I, you know, I've got one more, I think, that uh, was a, you know, it was kind of a fork in the road. It's not too, too dramatic, but it's, I think it's interesting. And that is that uh, when I moved back from Calgary in 1977, I think it was, it was getting to be partnership time at my firm in Calgary. Things were rocking and rolling along. It was a very busy economy. It was getting to be time to that they would offer me a partnership. And I liked Calgary, but I found it a little tough to to break into as a place where I made new good friends. And so I moved back to Edmonton and I started my own law practice and I hooked up with a couple of other guys and now just doing a general kind of law practice. And you know, by this time I bought and sold that one house. I'm kind of interested in real estate. And a, a guy from Toronto showed up called Raymond Aaron. He was in Edmonton buying property, and his realtor phoned me and said, Barry, um, I knew this realtor. He said, we're going to be in your neighborhood. Can we come in and use the phone? Just want to use the phone in your office. That Before cell phones, Patrick. Sure. There's no cell phones. So they showed up at my office. I sat them down in my boardroom. I said, here's the phone. You know, Here's the snacks and the water. You guys just stay as long as you want. And at the end of that, two hours that they were in there, Raymond Aaron came out and said, Barry, I want you to do all my real estate for me. I said, whoa. And who, and you are, I had no idea who Raymond, <laughs> who Aaron, Raymond was. Aaron was. Yeah. yeah and, and why that would be significant. But Raymond was a, a significant player in real estate and he was teaching courses across the country. And, and he said to me, but Barry, there's one condition. I said, do you have a fax machine? That was the condition. They were were just showing up, Patrick. They were just showing up. I said, no, Raymond, I don't. I've been looking at them. He said, okay, well, you can do all my work, and that's a lot of legal work, Barry, but you have to get a fax machine. If you don't get one, I won't send you one deal. And he was like that. That's how he would. So there's a fork in the road. Raymond Aaron shows up. I don't know who he is. I let him use my boardroom. At the end of it, it was really my introduction to real estate education and, and people who were going in that direction. and. That's turned out very well for me. And the fax machine was great as well. <laughs> That's so funny. Quick, quick uh, fax machine story. When I was 18 years old, I was working in uh, oil and gas industry corporate. And I went in to see our CFO. And I was talking to his assistant, uh, Grace. And I'm hearing this kind of funny noise. And I go, I said to Grace, I said, what is that noise? And she goes, that's a fax machine. And I go, what's a fax machine? And she goes, well, head office right now is sending us a fax, which is a, and it'll be a copy of a document and it'll come through across the wires and print out here. And I was just like, wow, are you kidding me? Like, that's incredible. (laughs) Oh boy. Funny, funny. I know. Yeah. So you met Raymond Aaron. He opens up the door to real estate for you. That's a pretty big fork in the road. And I'm, you know, Raymond Aaron's doing workshops and and the work that he's doing back then. I mean, he was certainly a one of the pioneers, I would say, in the world of real estate education, personal professional development, and the work that he was doing. And certainly hanging out at some of those workshops, I'm sure you did that would have been a part of also what you know led you to being what a speaker educator, opening up the door of, of opportunity to. Uh, get on stage and share your legal insights with investors. Would that be somewhere along that line? Well, that's exactly what happened. I mean, uh, I, I, I got to know Raymond and discovered he did real estate education and he came to Edmonton and to Alberta on a fairly regular basis and, and he would have evenings to speak. And so after a while, he asked me to come along and 
and uh, provide some legal gems, which I was happy to do. And of course, that let me meet uh, more investors and learn more about investing in real estate. And so that chance meeting with Raymond Aaron was really my entrance into uh, the wider world of educational uh, real estate. And uh, it was a it was a good fork in the road. So yeah, I started being a speaker and an educator, and all because of that. Yes, you can use my boardroom and my phones. Just stay as long as you want. There you go, supporting others' success and what shows up. That's neat. Year seventy. You and Donna are busy. You've you've evolved and developed the Focus Workshop series, agreements for sales, rent to owns, wholesaling. I mean, you've done a whole program. Barry, you're seventy. Now, there was a time when, you know, there was the rumor that you were going to retire, which that, that never happened. But my question for you is, is what do you see your future at 70 years old? Do you, you know, do you see yourself going till you're 90? How do you, how do you picture, you know, because retirement's such a funny word these days to me. I mean, you still hear it, but gosh, you know, I, I'm turning 60 this summer and I, if I would have known, like I had no idea how young I would feel at 60 and how fired up about life I am at 60 years old. So the word retirement just doesn't even come in. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. So what is it for you at 70? Well, Patrick, I'm, I'm like you. Yes, I'm, I'm 70, but, uh, you know, I play hockey twice a week and I play tennis and pickleball and I walk and I run and I have a bike and I garden and, uh, you know, uh, so on that side of it, I mean, physically, everyone has aches and pains, and I got a hip that probably needs doing. But, but overall, I mean, the big, broad brushstroke picture is that I really enjoy my life right now. All of the creative stuff I've done and the focus workshops that I teach—we've got one coming up in, in April that I'm working hard on right now. I I so much more enjoy what what I'm doing uh, now, say, than 20 years ago that I can't imagine retiring. I'm creating new programs. I'm doing new things on the social media side of it, on the website side of it, on the educational side of it. Uh, I'm traveling more. I'm working less. So I don't have any sense of, you know, quotes, retiring. I, I love what I'm doing now. And, you know, as they say, if you like what you're doing, you haven't worked a day in your life. So I can't say that was probably ran through my whole legal career. But right now, uh, I don't even feel like what I'm doing is working. I enjoy it so much. So I get to do basically what I want, travel when I want, come in and go to the office when I want. Uh, I am just totally self-directed at this point in time. So I have no thoughts of retirement at this point in my life. A couple of questions, you know, as we start to wind the show down a little bit, what advice would you give your 20 year old self today? You know, it'd be pretty, it'd be pretty basic advice. I think the first thing I'd say to people is live on 90% of what you earn. Take 10% of everything that comes across. If you get a dime, I guess that doesn't work because we don't have pennies anymore. <laughs> but if you get a dollar, take 10 cents and put it away in, in a long-term account that you're not touching. And when somebody say, well, what for? I say, it doesn't matter. Just put away 10% because that will start you on getting wherever you want to go. So I'd I'd start with that, and I would encourage people to to then get started in investing very early in their career. I'd, I'd encourage my 20-year-old self to start investing in something, and I'd explain to them the, 
the magic of compounding. I would show them that that beautiful curve that starts out so slowly, and then as you have your money working for a number of years, the power of compounding just doubles and triples and quadruples your money pretty quickly. And it's so easy, easy, easy peasy to do when you're 20. And it's so much harder to do if you want to start when you're 45. So I'd say, you know, start saving 10%, get started in investing early and let compounding work for you. By the way, investing in real estate has lots of possibilities for you. And that's a great way to start investing. You're a pretty confident lawyer. You're a pretty confident man in general. Have you always had that kind of confidence? Some people would say misplaced, Patrick, but uh, <laughs> yes, I've I've always uh, I've always been pretty uh, pretty confident about who I am and what I can do. Part of it is I do not have a big ego. I'm way more interested in hearing what the person across from me has to say and not what's going on in their life. And I'm I'm truly interested in it. I'm not just you know jollying them along in hopes that somehow this will turn into a real estate file or some other benefit to me. I'm very interested in in folks and, and what they're doing. And so, you know, lack of ego and being interested in somebody else just drives me along and has brought me success and a happy, relatively stress-free life. You're a, a relationship guy. You You appreciate and honor the relationships that you have. And you're always a contribution. You're, you drive those relationships. Do you see that that's been a really important part of your success? In, in, and then aside just from building business, but just in defining yourself and developing who you are, making sure that you're actually driving the relationships to, that support you and that you relate to, is that an intentional thing on your part? Well, it, it is. Firstly, it's, um, it is my nature to be a helpful person. I, I am like that just kind of because I'm like that. But uh, I mean, over the years and in doing personal development work, you know, neither you nor me nor any of the gurus have said it are probably the first one to say it is that there's a version of you, you do well by helping others. You do well yourself by helping others. And so uh, it's my nature to do it. And then when I, I guess I discovered that people who preach and coach success uh, have their various takes on it, but all of the takes are help others and you'll be fine. That just kind of solidified the notion of who I was going to be as a lawyer and a person. And that's how my life goes. And that's who I am. Okay. We're going to go into the rapid fire section of the podcast, Barry. It's one of my favorites. These are questions for you. Let's, let's see how quick we can fire them off. What's one of the favorite books that you've read? And or what is a book that you would gift? Uh, right now, I am reading a book about the late king of Thailand. It's a giant book. It weighs about 10 pounds. And it's all about the revered king of Thailand who uh, passed away recently. It was given to me by one of our, our Real Estate Investment Network members who happens to be Thai. And uh, so I'm reading that and it's uh, it's endlessly fascinating. And I am. Uh, I would give people or suggest that people read a book on it. Yeah, I can't remember the title right now. By David. It's all about Winston Churchill. About Winston Churchill and the Warriors. Winston Churchill and the Warriors and how he he went from being a politician who was on the outs because of numerous failures that he had to leading Britain through the war and through those dark, dark years. So 
I can uh, I can see my book on the King of Thailand on my table here. Do you want me to give you the title? <laughs> I can just zip over and get it. It's all good. You're all good. Okay. Okay. So so is there a book that I, I want to dig into this a little bit? Is there a book that you've read over the years that you that stands out as being a real impactful book for you? Something that you went, wow. You know, I really loved Stephen Covey's uh, was it the Seven Habits of yep. highly successful people. successful yep. people. You know, Stephen didn't. It it just struck me the way he. Uh, the way he wrote that book and the way he phrased it, it's not the, I mean, the stuff in there wasn't absolutely new or wonderful, but uh, I like the way he put it, and that's still a book that's on my shelf. What's your favorite swear word? Oh, I don't swear very much. You don't? What do I say? Don't. Shite. Okay, that's pretty good. Uh, right. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote, Barry? You may not have, but do you have one that comes to mind? No, I, I guess it's the... I, it's the version of the one that we talked about, which is you uh, you do well yourself by helping others. There's a bunch of versions of that quote, but I so solidly believe in that that uh, uh, that would be my inspirational quote. If it wasn't legal, we know you took on medical that that wasn't the goal. But if you if there was another profession that you could choose other than the one you have, what would you what would you like to attempt these days? professional hockey player <laughs> I've, and a defenseman i've discovered late in my hockey career i'm actually a defenseman not a forward like i was for 50 years that's awesome if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you get to the gates welcome home what are you just not very good at i'm not very good at long meetings and endless collections of people trying to get things done where you get bogged down and nothing happens. I just want to cut through all that BS and get to the heart of what's going on. And uh, so sometimes I think I'm not a very good committee guy. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Desk, car. Well, I never clean my car as much as I always promise myself I'm going to. My desk. I like a clean desk. You like a clean desk. I do. Do you have a favorite tune? Favorite band? The Eve of Destruction by Barry McGuire. The Eve of Destruction by Barry Maguire. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with that. That was a big hit for a guy named Barry Maguire who sang with the new Christy Minstrels. And uh, in the day when it was a popular tune, uh, people would say, are you Barry Maguire? And I'd go, as a matter of fact, I am. And that got me a lot of mileage, Patrick, I have to tell you. It's my ringtone on one of my phones. Uh, you should just dial it up when you're done. And you're a bit of a, you're a, bit of a jazz guy, too. Yes. You like that? I like uh, I like jazz. I'm so sorry to see Tommy Banks just passed away. I watched Tommy perform in Edmonton a lot, and when he and Big Miller were tearing it up in the '90s, it was uh, it, it was amazing. I, I do love listening to jazz, uh, particularly uh, piano, quieter piano jazz is just chills me right out. I love it. Favorite movie? Favorite movie? The Big Chill. I love The Big Chill. And what are you grateful for, Barry? I'm so grateful that I live in Canada, which is the best country in the whole wide world. I'm totally grateful that I live in Alberta. And I'm, I'm just endlessly grateful that the lottery of life put me here where I could be so many other horrible places. I'm grateful to be alive in this time, married to Donna in Alberta and doing what we're doing. That's great. The grateful for the lottery of life that puts you here. That's that's I'm going to add that to my gratitude list. 
I'm grateful yeah. to have you as a friend. I'm grateful that you were on my show today. I'm certainly grateful to have both you and Donna in uh, my life and Stephanie's life and part of the Real Estate Investment Network. The character that you are and uh, who you show up and how you show up is always appreciated, Barry. Thank you so much for being on the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Much appreciated, my friend. Thank you, Patrick. It was uh, a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.